Our next speaker is Ben Spackman. Ben Spackman is currently writing his doctoral dissertation at Claremont on the intellectual roots of creation, evolution, conflict in the LDS Church. He has a master's degree in Semitics from the University of Chicago and graduated from BYU in Near Eastern Studies. Ben has roughly 15 years of teaching experience at BYU and Institute, writes and speaks frequently and blogs online at Benjamin and Scribe. You can Google it. He is presenting a, a four-day workshop at Education Week later this month on making sense of the Bible by putting the text in context and is one of the senior personnel at BYU's recently made public reconciling evolution project. So with that, please let's welcome Ben Spackman. Thank you. Oh, this is going to be kind of funny. Um, my PowerPoint's been through a couple computers, so I hope it's in, in the order, I think. Uh, I want to open with a few pithy and memorable statements. Um, Elder Maxwell once said that Latter-day Saints often have a lack of doctrinal sophistication, which creates problems. Uh, he actually used the word gullible. Um, Sharon Eubank, in General Conference a couple of years ago, said that each of us needs to be better at articulating the reasons for our faith. Uh, attributed to Desmond Tutu, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. Uh, we, need, we need to treat causes and not effects, not the symptoms, but the, the root issue. And lastly, from Davis Bitten, who said this at the fair conference 15 years ago, what's potentially damaging or challenging to faith depends entirely, I think, on one's expectations and not necessarily the data. The problem is the incongruity between the expectation and the reality. And so today, I wish to articulate in part the reason for my own continued faith in God's scripture and the institutional church. I will identify some common, unsophisticated expectations about the nature of revelation, prophets, scripture, and church leadership, which I think cause problems, and illustrate why those assumptions are not consistent with scripture or history. Uh, this is B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. He was a staunch Calvinist Presbyterian and a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary from 1887 until his death in 1921. Now, Princeton, at the turn of the 19th century, was the center of Protestant thought. It was highly influential. Uh, it was also a battleground of Protestant thought. Now, beyond having a magnificent academic beard, uh, and I am, I am jealous, I admit, because I, I can't do that, Warfield contributed significantly to the theological foundations of the fundamentalist movement of the early 20th century, particularly regarding the concept of inerrancy. Now, in spite of all that, Warfield thought that faith and scripture were compatible with biological evolution, and he also made an argument for the presence of humanity in revealed scripture. He argued against models of revelation in which prophets are mere conduits for the transmission of divine information, or scribes of the divine, so-called dictational or mechanical theories of revelation. That is, he recognized that divine revelation comes through human means and thus bears human fingerprints, and he tried to balance and reconcile this with the divine. Now, B.H. Roberts said something similar about the balance between uh, the human and the divine, um, but I want to stick with Warfield for a minute. I am not claiming Warfield as some kind of crypto-Mormon, far from it. Rather, I cite Warfield to make this point. If Warfield, as a staunch Calvinist, proto-fundamentalist, uh, quasi-inerrantist, could argue for the presence of the human in divine revelation, how much more should we Latter-day Saints recognize and try to understand the role of the human in revelation, scripture, and church leadership? After all, in contrast to all those things about Warfield, our own leaders and canonized scriptures formally reject inerrancy. The Book of Mormon states that it contains the mistakes of men. DNC includes instructions for excommunicating the president of the church, and so on. And yet, many Latter-day Saints that I encounter are much more like fundamentalists. In fact, I think many LDS are like fundamentalist Protestants, 
and that they transfer the need for absoluteness about the Bible onto a need for absoluteness with church leadership. I keep a file of LDS statements I find uh, in publications and on blogs and on Facebook to remind me that I am not creating a straw man here, although I do not really have any data on how widespread these assumptions are. Uh, I do think that they are growing. There's one group that's pushing them that I find particularly dangerous, but I don't want to name them. Um, this is a conversation I had on Facebook with a fundamentalist evangelical. Uh, he really needed absoluteness for the Bible. And uh, I pushed him on it a little bit with some humor. Um, I could have easily, this, this could have easily been a Latter-day Saint swapping prophets instead of the Bible. I have had LDS tell me, if I can't trust prophets absolutely, how can I trust them at all? If they don't give us absolute knowledge, then what good are they? Uh, now, the problem with fundamentalism in LDS context is that it's kind of come to be associated with polygamy, and that's not the kind of fundamentalism I'm talking about, so I'm going to use the term absolutism and absolute instead. Uh, and for my purposes, I am defining uh, this fundamentalism or absolutism with a couple characteristics. First, absolute consistency. This uh, minimizes differences, tensions, or contradictions in history or scripture as only imagined, misunderstood, or mistranslated. Often the word harmonize has been abused not to actually make harmony, uh, but to make things sing in unison. Second, absolute accuracy. That is, uh, in this fundamentalist assumption, the idea is that revelation speaks primarily in historical and scientific terms and is necessarily factually correct because it comes from the mouth of God. This touches on the issue of recognizing different genres in scripture as well as inerrancy. Now our teachers, our materials, most of us do not uh, often talk about genre in scripture. And while we give lip service to errancy in practice, many of us are inerrantists. Third, the third assumption here is that revelation is absolutely unmediated. That is, whatever human elements might exist in the revelatory process have no functional effect on the end result as it reaches us. As David Bentley Hart puts it, any coherent account of what revelation means must involve an acknowledgement that God speaks through human beings and all their historical, cultural, and personal contingency. For fundamentalists, however, all the words of the Bible must be understood as direct locutions of God, passing through their human authors like sunlight through the clearest glass, and the canon of the New Testament must be understood as a flawlessly immediate communication in its every historical and lexical detail. And once again, we could uh, transpose this into an LDS setting in Gospel Doctrine class, and this would apply to a number of people in there. In other words, in this absolutist view, um, oops don't want to go there yet. Prophets would function like pure clear glass windows. They transmit revelation, but they, know they have no effect on it at all. Prophets are just the medium. They're the pipeline that it comes through. And last characteristic I would give for this absolutist uh, approach to things is it tends to be characterized by binary or polar rhetoric, which assumes clear, bright line, non-overlapping distinction between these things. And this simply doesn't reflect reality, and I've made this argument at length elsewhere, and I'll link to it when we get to the, uh, the paper version. Uh, so, by contrast, what I want to argue today is that revelation is not absolute, but composite. That is, revelation will always have a significant human component to it. Now, two years ago at this podium, I spoke about an idea called accommodation, the idea that God must adapt revelation down to the human condition in a variety of ways, and it has a lot of support in scripture, in Christian and Jewish tradition, in LDS doctrine, and scripture and history. Today, I want to speak about the other end of things. Accommodation is God doing the accommodating on his end. What I'm talking about today is when the revelation comes to us, what happens? 
Once it is received by humans, it must be voiced, interpreted, understood, or implemented by us, humans. The end result involves human input to a greater or lesser extent. So let me provide some examples of slightly different kinds, but all illustrating human influence on what we have received as inspired or revelatory. I'm not really distinguishing between those two today. Uh, we're going to go through five of these. First, um, Joseph Smith, prophet of the Restoration. He once received a verbal revelation, now canonized in DNC 130. And um, now in this case, I suspect God was being deliberately vague and perhaps even tweaking Joseph a little to say, you know, the second coming is not anytime soon and we have more important things at hand. So let's table this. But the point is, with this revelation, the bottom paragraph, Joseph Smith was left to interpret it, to figure out what it meant, even though this was verbal, direct revelation from God. Uh, the point is, revelation is not self-interpreting, nor is its meaning always obvious. Once received, it has to be understood through human reason. It has to be interpreted. Its, it's meanings and implications have to be teased out. Second example. Um, that, I didn't make a slide for this one. Uh, so in the book of Ether, we have the problem where they are crossing the great ocean and it's dark and the brother of Jared goes to the Lord and he says, we've got this problem, what should we do for light? And he receives revelation which explicitly asks him for his human input, which may have surprised him. It's a little bit like going to the big boss and saying, you know, we've got a problem that's above my pay grade, what do you want us to do about this? And expecting to be kind of handed over. And the big boss responds by saying, well, here's some options that won't work, so what do you suggest? Though miraculous, the resulting gloaming stones involve both the literal hand of God and human ideas, human input, working together in tandem. The literal light of revelation in this case is the result of God implementing human input. Example three, um, citing nature itself, Paul asserts a necessity for men to have short hair and women to have long hair in 1 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. We know now that Paul here is reflecting common Greco-Roman concepts of human physiology, which reasoned that hair length in the sexes contributed directly to fertility. Uh, this is a little bit weird and complicated to us, but there's an entire article in the Journal of Biblical Literature that I'll link to. Um, Reproduction constituted the first commandment of the Bible, so Paul would have been attuned to this. In other words, men with long hair less fertile, women with short hair less fertile, so if you're going to reproduce, you've got to have your hair the right way. Um, this is an example of how the divinely inspired canon includes culturally influenced human ideas. Scripture thus comes to us not in purely divine form, but already pre-mingled with philosophies of men. Now, a longer example. In the book of Acts, we find revelation that simultaneously undoes the kosher laws, which had been in force for you know, at least a thousand years, and opened the gospel to the Gentiles. These are monumentously massive religious, cultural, and social changes with a lot of implications and a lot of associated questions. For such a large issue, or two large issues, one might expect detailed instructions from the divine. But what do we find? The revelation itself is short, even cryptically minimal. Peter sees a vision of unkosher animals and hears a voice saying, Peter, rise, slaughter. Uh, this is not just a verb to kill an animal, but this is the verb for ritually slaughtering an animal like you would at the temple. Uh, rise, slaughter, and eat. Peter resists the revelation. Not so, Lord, surely not. And the reply is, what God has made clean, you must not call profane or unclean. And this is repeated three times. This is clear and unmistakable revelation, but there are no details. There is no mention of the Gentiles. Peter has to put this together with revelation to other people, as well as human logic and reason to figure out what it all means. And then there are all the implications. Do you need to follow the Jewish rituals and law to accept the Jewish Messiah? Yes? No? Somewhere in the middle? Some of them, but not all? What about circumcision? Had God changed the rules of salvation in the middle of the game? Do Gentiles who accept the Jewish Messiah born in Judea and prophesied by the Jewish scriptures need to become Jewish? The apostles have to reason through all of this. 
And the scriptures, the New Testament records that there are disagreements among church leaders, sometimes sharp. There are factions in different geographical churches. And Paul spends much of his letters trying to work out and explain how all these things fit together. Now look at the immediate aftermath in the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. In verse 19, James says, it is my judgment call that, and then he kind of gives a ruling. He is not saying God has whispered to me. He is not saying I have peeked into the divine Wikipedia that this is how it eternally should be. He says, it's my judgment call. This is, this is what I think. And he explains, in verse 28, a partial decision is made about what parts of the law need to be followed, and the language is very interesting. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That is, it, it seems good. It looks like the best option. It appears that this is what we should do. And there is both human judgment in this. It, it, it seems good to us. And th there appears to be some kind of spiritual confirmation that this is, this is what you should do. Although there is clearly divine and repeated revelation at the root of these massive changes about the kosher laws and the Gentiles, the end result, as the early Christians experienced it, and scripture records it, involved a lot of people making a lot of human reason judgment calls and interpretations. Although it began with revelation, as perceived in the pew in Galatia or Corinth or Jerusalem, it probably seemed like it had an awful lot of human aspects to it. Maybe a convenient decision on the part of the Jerusalem leaders. But they did their best to implement God's will as it had come, as seemed best to them and the Spirit. And I'm reminded of a comment by early LDS apostle Amasa Lyman, who talking about polygamy said, we obeyed the best we knew how and no doubt made many crooked paths in our ignorance. Now much more could be said about this example in Acts with more passages brought to bear, or we could profitably compare the differences between Kings and Chronicles, which tell the same stories, or the differences in the four Gospels. But many LDS hand wave away anything in the Bible that makes them uncomfortable or does not match the doctrinal status quo. Our not translated correctly escape clause is too easily used. It's like a cheat code in a video game. It lets you bypass the hard stuff, which means you don't have to do the work necessary to progress and there's no growth from having to wrestle through it. Now for my uh, last and largest example, we're gonna move on to the LDS creation narratives. These come up an awful lot for me uh, between my teaching, my work on Genesis chapter 1, which is a book I've been working on forever, um, my dissertation work on uh, evolution and creationism, which deal with interpretations of Genesis and LDS scripture in general. Uh, so I get asked about this stuff a lot. Joseph Smith brought forth three inspired revisions of Genesis, namely Moses, Abraham, and the temple. So uh, two quick notes. First, I refrain from discussing the temple, although there are some really key things that would illustrate this point. Uh, so just keep in mind that it has some distinct and important differences. And second, um, I'm going to use Genesis, Moses, and Abraham throughout the rest of this, not to talk about the books as a whole, but just those chapters parallel to Genesis for shorthand. Uh, my analysis is limited to those chapters. Differences between these uh, Genesis parallels bear directly on how we conceive of revelation in the church. And here, this is the one thing I'll say about the temple, uh, parroting Elder McConkie. There are some major differences in the temple in that the events are placed on distinctly different days. Now, how we respond to the differences between these creation accounts reveals our conception of revelation. And I believe these differences strongly undermine absolutist or fundamentalist conceptions of revelation. So I'm going to introduce two categories of differences between these texts. Uh, from an absolutist perspective, the revealed texts of Moses, Abraham, and the temple should not have these differences. They should align identically against the translated incorrectly King James Version. However, this is not what we find. So, uh, in what I'm calling category one, the King James and Moses have the same text and then Abraham is different. Moses retains the King James language, but Abraham varies. And in category two, um, Moses makes a change, but then Abraham reverts back to the King James version. 
Now, from an absolutist perspective, both of these categories call the inspiration of Moses into question just from different directions. Category one says Moses is not inspired enough. Category two says it was mistaken to make a change in the first place. And last note, the stark differences with the temple as referenced by Elder McConkie seem to call both Moses and Abraham into question. How can revelation be inconsistent or incorrect, particularly when coming through the same prophet in the same time period and culture? Doesn't incorrectness or inconsistency completely undermine its claim to revelation? Thus, textual issues generate theological issues, which quickly become pastoral and faith issues. Now, I'd wager a few people actually ask about the textual differences, but at the root, the problems here are interpretive assumptions about the nature of revelation prophets in scripture. It's apparent we need to wrestle with the nature of those a little bit more, as all too often the result for someone asking these questions is a rejection of the inspired nature of these texts instead of a reevaluation of the inherited assumptions that rejection was based on. And so to give you a roadmap of where I'm going in the rest of my time, uh, after a short review of Moses and Abraham, we're going to look at two category one examples one category two example, and we're going to zoom out to look at a couple that parallel those, and then I'll conclude by offering some personal reflections on the nature of revelation as composite. And uh, I think I will skip over a few bits of this for time's sake, because I do want to have questions. So let's start with the book of Moses. Um, it is, of course, the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis. And recognizing this raises certain questions and helps us avoid some assumptions. First, it means Moses does not constitute an entirely separate and independent revelation confirming Genesis. Rather, as with the JST, Joseph began with the English text of the King James Version and modified it. He did not start with a blank slate for God to write upon, which then happened to match Genesis. Second, in modifying and expanding the English language of the King James Version, Joseph did not make use of Greek, Hebrew, or other translational tools to produce Moses. Third, some have read uh, passages in Moses to indicate that Genesis was divinely dictated by God to Moses and then apparently dictated to Joseph Smith again. Um, there are four major obstacles to that understanding. Uh, and of course, dictation theories, it is not impossible that God dictate a revelation to someone. There are some examples in scripture where it seems like that would have been the only option. I don't think Nephi could have simply gotten the revelation, build a boat without some kind of revelatory Ikea instructions after that because he was not a boat maker. Um, ditto with King David uh, and Solomon in the temple in Jerusalem. It says that they receive a revelation with the, the tavnit, the plan, the layout of the temple that they are supposed to build. But I think dictation, dictated revelation, ultra-detailed revelation like that is the very rare exception and not the rule. Um, so was Moses dictated? Here are four reasons why that doesn't make sense. First off, Moses 1 originally was a separate and distinct document for Joseph Smith that was later combined with the JST work after the fact, even though today it reads for us like a smooth blend from one into the other. Second, uh, writing in BYU Studies in 1968, James Harris echoed Joseph Fielding Smith's absolutist rhetoric that retention of the word firmament in Moses meant that it reflects an apostate theology. Uh, and this would be a, an ancient Israelite apostate theology with a, a flat earth and a solid dome overhead and cosmic waters above and below. The idea that a text literally dictated by God would retain an apostate theology, as they call it, seems difficult to justify from an absolutist perspective, particularly when it's a one-word difference in a supposedly twice-dictated revelation. Third, um, Various characteristics of the JST itself and how Joseph Smith treated it argue against divine dictation. For example, Joseph translated the same passage twice with different results on several occasions. Sometimes he provided a new translation but later declared the King James Version correct. These militate against the idea of divine dictation to a prophet scribe. And Robert J. Matthews, who was eminently orthodox, uh, wrote a book on this and has been quoted in the Enzyme multiple times that this was not the simple scribal uh, dictation from God, but it's a study and thought process 
which implies that Joseph Smith's thoughts are part and parcel of this. Um, it was a revelatory process. Now, we have an explicit example of this study and thought process with the JST elsewhere. If we look at Hebrews 6.1 in Willard Richards' account, Joseph Smith read Hebrews 6 and said, I simply don't believe this as written. It's wrong. Uh, there's no claim of revelation. There's, there's no, the Spirit has whispered to me. It's reading it and going, that's not right. Let's fix this. In other words, Joseph's human cognition and interpretation are playing an active role in the text of the Joseph Smith translation, which is what the Book of Moses is. And we'll come back to this. Um, now let's assume against those four points that uh, the Book of Moses was dictated anyway. It does not follow from that that such a divine dictation would be historical in nature. Uh, taking scripture as our guide, revelation comes in parable and poetry, historical fiction, and fictionalized history. Revelation is not itself a genre, but manifests itself in multiple forms and genres. In other words, accepting the inspiration of the literary narrative, which presents Genesis as a conversation with Moses, doesn't dictate anything about whether it is actually a historical event or not. Uh, any more than Jesus saying, a certain man went down to Jericho, indicates the actual existence of a mugged Israelite, an empathetic Samaritan. Um, now, I've had people who are not familiar with genre arguments come back to me and say, are you saying Moses is a parable? And I say, no, I'm saying it's not a journalistic history. I just go to parables as my go-to example for genre because it's the one people know the best out of scripture. And it's clearly not historical in nature, parables. Uh, but again, genre is rarely addressed in LDS treatments of scripture. So, was the book of Moses dictated by God? It doesn't seem so. More likely, it's a literary framing somewhat like the way the book of Deuteronomy updates and reframes the law of Moses, which I don't have time to go into. Um, so this seems to be the process for the book of Moses. You start with the King James text that goes into what I'm calling the JST process in Joseph Smith's head. It involves divine inspiration as well as Joseph's human knowledge, his cultural assumptions, his worldview, his English language. Um, now the textual changes between Moses and the King James Version, just looking at those two, they're relatively minor. Mostly it's a shift in person from the King James Version's and God said X multiple times to and I God, first person, said X multiple times. It's in conjunction with Abraham and the temple that the text and changes in Moses become significant. So, let's talk about Abraham. Uh, Abraham's a very complex topic. Um, I guess that was my summary slide. We are a little out of order here. Abraham's a complex topic. I make no claim of expertise there and will forbear on all but the most relevant and agreed upon details, which are that Abraham, uh, as a revelation brought forth by Joseph Smith, postdates the book of Moses. It postdates Joseph's Hebrew studies. Um, he acquired a number of lexicons and grammars and studied for several weeks under Josiah Satius. And lastly, a number of conservative LDS scholars have recognized the presence of Joseph Smith's Hebrew in the book of Abraham. It plays a role there. Now, two things are significant about the presence of that Hebrew in the book of Abraham. First, Hebrew as a Semitic language is out of place in Abraham's location and time period in the Old Testament. We have good data on this. It is, Hebrew did not even exist at the time Abraham did. Abraham probably spoke some form of Akkadian or Amorite, perhaps, but Hebrew simply hadn't come into existence yet. Um, not in his time, not in his place. So we should not expect it from a dictated perfect account from Abraham's time period. Uh, moreover, the kind of Hebrew in the book of Abraham is distinct enough that it can be traced to Joseph Smith's teacher and materials. Indeed, perhaps most of the category one changes that I'm going to go into can be traced to Joseph's Hebrew. We'll see that the slide I used to illustrate the JST process with the book of Moses seems to apply equally to the book of Abraham, the difference being the base text Joseph used. Whereas Moses came from Joseph Smith JSTing the English to turn it into a verb, I think the Abraham parallels come from Joseph Smith JSTing the Hebrew of Genesis 1 through 3. And I think two related category one examples will illustrate this pretty clearly. They are uh, the firmament versus expanse and day versus age. 
Um, I single these out because they indicate the influence of Joseph Smith's Hebrew on Abraham in a way that only fits the modern time period from about the 1700s on down. Like any other language, biblical Hebrew changes, and our understanding of the ancient world, the cosmology in Genesis, and the meaning of corresponding Hebrew terms and concepts has changed since Joseph Smith's day. So uh, let's look at what I'm, what I'm getting at here. Um, the first category one change I want to talk about is the presence of the day-age interpretation in Abraham. The day-age interpretation, which you're probably all familiar with, understands day in Genesis 1 as an indeterminate period of time, not a 24-hour day. The history here is important because it shows how the day-age interpretation is a modern imposition on the text driven entirely by modern concerns. Now, the intellectual engine driving the day-age reading is a pervasive interpretation from about the last 600 years called concordism. And this is the idea that scripture and science are inevitably saying the same thing because uh, God is ultimately responsible for both. God is responsible for nature and scripture, and as the author of both things, they should say the same thing. We just have to figure out how to make them mesh. They must be in concord with each other. I read through a concordist lens. Genesis presents a physical or natural history of creation, even if in metaphorical language. Therefore, whatever Genesis says must match what science says. If the earth is old, Genesis must also be made to say the earth is old, and so the days of Genesis simply cannot be 24-hour days. Now, the day-age interpretation is not unique to LDS and predates the Book of Abraham. It goes back to at least uh, French naturalist Georges Cuvier in 1805, and some scholars push it back to a guy named Thomas Burnett in England in 1681 with his sacred theory of the earth. In the 17th century, as various discoveries and understandings in geology began to indicate a very old earth, the controlling assumption of concordism steered biblical interpretation to match. Burnett's book was extremely popular. It had been imported to the US by 1689. And so the day-age interpretation was in the US very quickly. And by the early 1800s, it was an extremely popular way of making Genesis and science match up. Now, what do we find in the Pearl of Great Price? Um, this one, I hope you can read this one. King James and Moses more or less say the same thing. And then Abraham on day one has a little bit longer verbiage. This was the first or the beginning of that which they called day and night. Moses matches the King James Version using day, but Abraham reads differently. Now, as we go on to the next days, this is probably too small to see, so I've got a second slide. The King James and Moses are identical throughout the days, and on each one, the book of Abraham replaces day with the much more indeterminate noun time. Now, um, in the materials Joseph Smith used to study Hebrew from Josiah Satius, that grammar is 32 pages long, and four and a half pages of it are dedicated to a reprint of Genesis chapter 1 in Hebrew. We know Satius taught with it. He, we know he made them read it. We know he used examples from it. Joseph's lexicon in 1832 also defined yom as time generally or a considerable time. And so I strongly suspect that the translation in Abraham of time is a reflection of the day-age interpretation. Now, is the day-age interpretation of Genesis wrong? Uh, let me bluntly say yes. Um, now, the next question I immediately get is, so are young earth creationists? And I say no. Read my book that's not out yet, which is a cheat, I know. Um, the problem is that ancient creation accounts had very different purposes than recounting physical origins, and that's not at all what Genesis is talking about. It is our modern post-scientific revolution, post-enlightenment assumptions that lead us to read Genesis for information about the physical origins of creation, and that's not the point Genesis was given for. It's kind of like, it's like reading the phone book for a recipe. It's possible you can tease something out of it, but that's not what it's talking about when understood in context. Um, now, my point is that Abraham here pretty clearly reflects what Joseph Smith was being taught in the 1800s about what the Hebrew meant. Um, ah, this is just... I usually talk fast, and it means I prepped way too much material. So example two, 
Um, Abraham changes firmament to expanse. Now in ancient Near Eastern cosmology, which was shared generally among the Israelites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Hittites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Egyptians, pretty much everyone we have text from who has written about this stuff tells us that this is what the ancient Middle Eastern people believed about the cosmology. You had a flat earth, you had a solid dome above it, there were waters above and below, and uh, this was their conception of the universe. The firmament literally referred to that solid dome which restrained the cosmic waters. Uh, it's kind of an inverse snow globe model. Instead of this flat thing with a dome to keep the water in, God makes space in the watery cosmos uh, inside to make space for humans to live. So the inside of the dome has air and the outside is all cosmic waters. Uh, the translation expanse tries to get away from this well-established fact in order to align Genesis with science because we know that the sky is not a solid dome with waters behind it. But both Joseph's 1832 Hebrew lexicon and Satius grammar give the equivalent of rakiah as expanse. So the changes Joseph Smith makes that are unique to Abraham over against Moses and Genesis seem to have a root in the Hebrew of his day and in the understandings of 19th century Hebrew. The presence of these things in Abraham is a problem for absolutist revelation. So let's look at category two. This is where Moses makes a change, but then Abraham reverts back to the King James Version. Now, uh, let's see, let's skip him. Um, a green and clean are similar words in English. And that may have been what triggered the change with Joseph Smith working with the English for the book of Moses. But by the time he's working on the book of Abraham, he studied Hebrew. Uh, and the Hebrew here in Genesis 130 is kol yerek asev, that is every greenery, every green thing, namely plants. And so I propose that Joseph Smith made a change in Moses because clean makes more sense than green plants. Not every plant is green, and Jewish stuff makes sense with the idea of clean. But once he reads it in Hebrew, he says, oh, wait, I understand why the King James translated it this way, and he reverts back to the King James reading. Again, it would seem that Joseph Smith's 19th century human knowledge, which at this point includes Hebrew, is playing a role in how he is uh, translating this and, and how we are uh, encountering this revelation. Now, if we look beyond the pearl of great price, we find more category two examples that may prove helpful, and these have also really bothered people who approach them with absolutist assumptions. Uh, so first, we have Matthew and the Sermon at the Temple read the same way, but then Joseph Smith makes a change in the JST. Shouldn't the JST and the Book of Mormon be the same because they're both inspired? We also find occasions where the King James Version and Joseph Smith read against the Joseph Smith translation. Um, in the Book of Revelation, Joseph made a minor deletion, but then in 1844, he quoted the King James and declared that it was altogether correct in the translation. And lastly, if you can see that bottom line, in one of his last sermons in 1844, Joseph Smith gave a rendering of Genesis 1 as it read originally that does not match Moses, Abraham, or the temple. So, uh, what do we do with all this stuff? These differences between texts in modern scripture undermine a simplistic equation of scripture with divinely revealed facts. They strongly suggest that revelation, ancient or modern, cannot be simplistically equated with factual correctness. Rather, we should understand revelation, even canonized modern revelation, as a process, a progression along a spectrum of correctness. Revelation is not static, nor even a straight line of upwards progress, but a mediated human divine dialectic process, which sometimes becomes frozen as scripture. Think of scripture as a snapshot in time of the progress that is being made through revelation. The implication is that, I'm repeating myself, uh, scripture thus contains human elements and understandings common to the time. And this can account for differences between inspired texts, which according to common assumptions, should be identical. 
The textual changes in the Pearl of Great Price and the Temple are best explained by conceptualizing Revelation as a mediated human-divine composite process that incorporates human knowledge and assumptions of a particular time period and culture and time and place. So returning to Davis Bitten, let's ask, um, what kind of expectations about revelation and scripture and prophets and church leadership are we creating with our children, with our grandchildren, with the youth we teach in church over the pulpit? Henry Eyring Sr., the famous scientist, once cautioned that impetuous youth upon finding the authority trusts crumbling, even on unimportant details, is apt to lump everything together and throw the baby out with the bath. And I think we're seeing that to some extent. The more absolutist and fundamentalist the claim, and the tighter we link it with the truth of the gospel and the authority of church leadership, the easier we make it to reject scripture and faith when that claim turns out to be more complex or have more humanity than people have been led to expect. If the paradigm presented to me as a young believer or convert is a stark dichotomy between a human, man-made, uninspired church and a fully divine, inspired one lacking in humanity, then any mark of humanity in that church or scripture leadership moves me from one box into the other. Returning to B.B. Warfield, on such a conception, it is easy to see that every discovery of a human trait in scripture is a disproving of divinity of scripture. In my view, too many LDS are raised with absolutist assumptions that prophets are mere conduits or windows that revelation comes through, that no human reason is involved in interpreting, understanding, or implementing revelation. Often they lose their faith, but they retain those absolutist assumptions. So uh, note this meme that's been floating around recently. Um, this is supposed to be an argument against the truth of the church. Uh, I did not make the cut on the right, um, but you may recognize some people there. <laughs> now, what does this meme assume? It assumes that if you have prophets, you have all access, on-demand, all access, on-demand, backstage uh, VIP pass to the mind of God, which provides unmediated, unaccommodated, perfect knowledge. If you've got that, then no human reason should ever be necessary to understand, explain, or implement revelation. There's no room for humanity in that conception. But as I hope I have demonstrated, those assumptions are not well grounded. Uh, now, of course, I am generalizing and I am pushing things a little bit to an extreme, but again, these assumptions are pretty broad among Latter-day Saints, and they come out in daily conversations and questions from students and Facebook posts all over the place. My own assumptions and expectations have been fundamentally reshaped through my studies in history of religion, history of science, and the Bible. History of science, for example, is essentially the study of the nature of knowledge, what we know, how we came to know it, what it means to know something, and our assumptions that play a role in knowing our worldview, our way of thinking, our inherited assumptions, they seem just as reasonable and natural to us as the flat earth and solid domed sky was to ancient Israelites within their worldview and their inherited assumptions. This has made me aware that my inherited assumptions, particular concordism, which I have written about elsewhere and I'll link to, they are not natural and neither are anyone else's assumptions. Assumptions are typically where the problem lies. History of religion and biblical studies have introduced me to non-LDS scholars wrestling with the nature of revelation in the Bible. For example, evangelical scholar Kenton Sparks and Jewish scholar Benjamin Sommer have each written books arguing that we should understand revelation as a human divine collaboration. Uh, I am not really saying anything new or pioneering from one perspective, I'm just bringing it into an LDS setting here. Sparks in particular argues that revelation is progressive. That should sound familiar to us Latter-day Saints with the explicit doctrine we have of line upon line. The problem is that with our absolutist assumptions, we forget that doctrine and take any given line of revelation as ideal, static, absolute, and final, instead of a temporary stopping place on the way to further updates, corrections, or even reversals. Latter-day Saint interpreters who engage in scientific concordist readings of the Pearl of Great Price, for example, want to take particular details as divinely revealed scientific facts which are therefore unchanging and eternal because facts don't change and revelation comes direct and unmediated from the mind of God. But because of the textual differences in their concordist assumptions, they have to take pains to pick and choose between different texts and accounts and how they relate those to the physical, natural history of creation that science has given us and is still discovering. 
It's perhaps ironic that my relationship to the institutional church and my faith are much more resilient because I expect that much of church administration, hierarchy, and teaching is human. I believe God can and does speak to prophets, and I don't think that belief is incompatible with the idea that the majority of day-to-day -day things that come from church headquarters consists of humans doing the best they can with the revelation they receive on the model of Acts 15.28. It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. I find that to be both realistic and believing, and it provides the title of my talk today. Paradoxically, it is by recognizing and understanding the presence of the human that my faith in the divine is preserved. Now, other LDS scholars have argued for the place of a human role in Revelation. For example, Grant Underwood writes that, some Latter-day Saints may assume that the prophet was not involved in any way whatsoever with the wording of the Revelation texts, that he simply repeated word for word to ascribe what he heard God say to him, but our investigation has suggested otherwise and I'm skipping a little. We need to see Joseph as more than a mere human fax machine through whom God communicated finished revelation texts composed in heaven. Joseph had a role to play in the revelatory process, and I would follow through on the logical expansion of that and say, just as today, Russell Nelson has a role to play in the revelatory process. Revelation, scripture, and church directives are not necessarily composed of divinely revealed and ideal eternal facts, but inevitably contain human elements and understandings common to the time. Ultimately, the qualifying characteristic of revelation is not the complete lack of humanity, but the guiding hand of the divine with that humanity in a joint composite progressive process, which we call the restoration. Thank you. All right, let's do the hard stuff. <laughs> How can I explain to others what you explained to us in a paragraph? Um, <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time. You can't. Um, I, I know there are a lot of people right now thinking about how do we communicate particularly to young people where podcasts and YouTube videos are kind of becoming the default form of communication of information. And uh, I suppose that for those of us who are more academic and wish to communicate down to the lay audience, we have work to do to do that. Um, but I've written about a lot of this stuff, and at this point in my writing, what I typically do when someone asks a question is I say, I've got 3,000 words on this with a lot of references. Please go give it a read or at least a skim, and then come talk to me and let me know if that doesn't help steer you differently. Um, a, lot of these, a lot of these problems are not really about data. They're about the worldview and the framework that we encounter the data in, the, the constellation of expectations that we have. And it is in... I have quit responding online to particular questions about data and instead tried to work very proactively to shape that constellation of expectations so that whatever the data is doesn't trouble people because there's always more data coming. Uh, Brigham Young once said, you know, the elders thought that all the cats were out of the bag and then they heard about polygamy and brethren, you can expect an eternity of cats. Um, so I think the best thing to do is not try to explain particular issues but to try to shape people's worldview so it's capable of dealing with individual issues and data points. Um, how would I manage a classroom with, let's see, this is going to be too long, I'm sorry. Concerning day age, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. That one's not getting to the point. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll take the gloves off. Um, Please name the group Pushing Fundamentalism. <laughs> I'm sorry, Scott. Uh, there is a group that goes by the name the Heartlanders. They marry a particular geographic interpretation of the Book of Mormon, which is absolutely fine. You can think whatever you want about Book of Mormon geography. But they marry it with uh, right-wing constitutionalist politics, young earth creationism, an authoritarian view of, of prophets that is absolutely absolutist. It's a God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And they claim that anyone who disagrees with them is apostate. 
they have taken to naming church history employees and BYU professors who are off base. Um, I think the Heartlanders are dangerous fundamentalists. Bottom line. Um, why is this revelatory process not more frequently shown and discussed in the decision-making process of current prophets and apostles? Um, I don't have access to that kind of inside information. Uh, I have come to this through my own studies, which I don't think anyone in the quorum has done. They experience it as a practical matter. Um, why they have chosen to keep those internal discussions more internal uh, I couldn't say, but if we do go back and read LDS history, if you look early 20th century, you have apostolic disagreements that were being carried out in public, um, in newspapers, in debates, and that seemed to have a fairly divisive effect on the church. So on the one hand, keeping those things much more private preserves a sense of unity. On the other hand, everything is trade-offs. It also gives the idea that whatever decision comes, comes because it is purely divine and this is, this is it. Um, so I'm speculating there. Question on Adam and Eve. Um, last summer I was asked to do a guest lecture for uh, late summer honors in the biology department. Um, they asked me to speak about what Genesis has to say about evolution. I was given three and a half hours and I went over. Um, so I'm not going to tackle Adam and Eve here. But you can find an outline of that lecture on my blog. Uh, how are we doing? We got time for one or two more here. So, okay, if Hebrew yom only means a 24-hour day, how do you deal with the following passages? Here's the thing. Words mean different things in context, and you cannot transpose meaning willy-nilly from one context to another. Um, and here I'm borrowing from John Walton's brief but accessible argument where he says, you know, if my wife calls upstairs and says, uh, we need to go, and I say, okay, just a second, and four minutes later I come down, I cannot take that usage of a second and transpose it onto, say, the Olympic timing committee for races. <laughs> Yom, in certain contexts, can be used idiomatically to refer to an indefinite period of time. You cannot transfer that idiom into Genesis because the context is not there. It's a... Uh, illegitimate totality transfer, as it's called. Um, which ones have I done and which ones have I not done? Uh, I, think I've, I think I've gone through most of these okay. that I can answer briefly. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you much. Did you get a Brownie?